I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 116 of Caro Pop, sponsored by Revolution Brewing. Our guest this week is a drummer in one great band, a singer-guitarist in another, and an ever-restless creative spirit all around, Janet Beverage Bean. Since the mid-1980s, Beverage Bean has drummed, sung, and written songs for 11th Dream Day. That muscular, angular Chicago band released its debut album, Prairie School Freakout, in 1988, and is still going strong after 15 albums and an EP. Freakwater, her ongoing country folk collaboration with singer Catherine Irwin, came out with its self-titled debut album in 1989 and has 10 albums under its collective belt. Beverage Bean has worked on many other projects over that time as well. In a conversation conducted in her uptown Chicago building, Beverage Bean recounts growing up in Louisville, Kentucky and beginning a life in music on instruments other than the drums. After she met guitarist, singer-songwriter Rick Rizzo, the two of them moved up to Chicago, formed 11th Dream Day with bassist Doug McCombs and guitarist Baird Fiji, and got married. Rizzo sang most of the songs, but Beverage Bean did a lot of the writing early on. How did she distinguish which songs she was writing for 11th Dream Day versus Freakwater? 11th Dream Day signed a major label deal before the wave of Nirvana-inspired loud guitar bands, and it released three albums on Atlantic. Beat, that's B-E-E-T, from 1989, Lived to Tell from 1991, and El Mudio from 1993. I was writing a local music column for the Chicago Tribune for much of that time, and I reported on how 11th Dream Day was trying to meet Atlantic's commercial expectations while continuing down its own critically acclaimed path. At one point, 11th Dream Day was recording demos with previous Carol Pop guest producer Brad Wood. At another, the band was asking to be let out of its contract. What happened there? Did 11th Dream Day ever feel creatively compromised by the label? Did the band feel liberated after it left? What were the creative dynamics like during that time? Why did Beverage Bean walk out during a concert in Italy? Was it hard for Beverage Bean and Rizzo to separate their musical and personal lives? How have they been able to work together for so many years through marriage and divorce? How did she balance her work with Freakwater at this time? How did she and Catherine Irwin make such beautiful music despite being, in Beverage Bean's words, musically illiterate? What is happening with each band now? Then there are all of Beverage Bean's other projects. Long ago, she played shows and recorded an album of Emmy Lou Harris and Graham Parsons songs with Jeff Lesher of Green. She took center stage on the 2003 album Dragging Wonder Lake by Janet Beverage Bean and the Concertina Wire. Under the name The Horses Ha, she and English guitarist James Elkington released two albums of British-style folk. Elkington later joined what is the current incarnation of 11th Dream Day. Beverage Bean and the Mekon Sally Timms, another previous Carol Pop guest, have collaborated on the Dadaist musical performance art project Moxie Tongue. Then there's the mashup Freakwater and Mekon's band, The Freakons. And just last summer, Beverage Bean and Robert Lloyd, lead singer of the British post-punk band The Nightingales, teamed up to release a Nancy Sinatra Lee Hazelwood kind of album called Black Cat Dark Horse. There was a time we were together. We cover as much as we can in this illuminating and inspiring Carol Pop conversation with Janet Beverage Bean. You can pass the microphone to the one who wants the podium. A ship of fools can tag along. Sink the ship, we'll hang on. That's why 
Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for asking. Tell me, like, you play a lot of instruments and are in a lot of bands. <laughs> what was the first instrument that you learned? The first instrument that I learned, uh, well, the first instrument I brought home to learn was the trombone. And uh, upon my father seeing it, he decided that it wasn't um, ladylike enough uh, of an instrument. So he made me take it back and uh, switch instruments. And by that time, I think uh, all the flutes had been taken uh, and... Uh, so I chose the clarinet. So I played the clarinet in school. Um, what grade is this? And where's the school? This school was in Louisville, Kentucky. And it must have been fifth grade, something like that. Fifth, sixth grade. And so I played that for about four or five years. And um, then I uh, I sold it off along with a camera to, to hitch a ride to New York in high school. <laughs> But uh, let's see, after that, I played piano for a bit. I, I wanted to play piano very much, and I did that for a while. And um, and then really the first instrument that I played with the band was the uh, tambourine and the triangle. <laughs> and it was a rather large band, uh, and those were the instruments I was given to play. Was that a rock band, or was that like, you know, ensemble in school again? Oh, no, that was a full-on awesome band called Skull of Glee that was... I love um, that name. Yeah, it was really a remarkable sort of um, cross between um, kind of... Roxy music and a surf band or some a tribally surf band. It was a, a really odd conglomeration of like seven or eight people in a sort of performance based. I was in high school. I was by far the youngest person involved in it. And um and I was fired from that band for um I, whatever reason. And it ended up that the guitar player in that band, Wink O'Bannon, ended up in Eleventh Dream Day. Wow. Wait, how does a tambourine player get fired from a band? <laughs> I mean, uh, you obviously can keep time. You've shown that over the years. So I, I failed to show up at practice on time or something. I don't know. It's probably something uh, uh, something to do with belligerence, I'm sure. But um, then I think my first like serious... There was another band out of Louisville called the Babylon Dance Band. And they sort of... Half of them went on to become Antietam, which is a band that still operates out of New York. And um, so Babylon Dance Band had broken up. And Tim and Tara, who are now in Antietam... Um, wanted to start a new band. And I just kind of sat down at the drums and gave it a whirl. And it, it kind of just came to me enough that they're like, yeah, you can be our drummer. And so then I just became a drummer. So that's how, yeah, I was wondering about like the sort of the, the transition from tambourine to full on drum. Kit. It was merely just uh, sitting behind them. I don't know. It was, it was really odd. It came to me pretty easily when I was just listening back to some recordings we'd made. And this would have been in, 81 maybe and uh uh i'm remarkably a pretty good i think i'm a bet was a better timekeeper then <laughs> i am now um, and and uh um i don't know if i've improved a whole lot either <laughs> it's uh yeah it was that was my first band were there drummers at the time who you really liked and were thinking about no, not at all. I never really you thought... You weren't like a drum geek? No, 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 no. I was I was someone that was just ultimately searching for um, people to hang out with. I just really wanted... I wanted a community of people that could be a family separate from my own. So, um, 
I just, I wanted to be a part of something and I could do it. And I enjoyed, I enjoyed the people and, and, uh, it was just a whole lot of fun. So no, I didn't have, at the time, I think the raincoats were my favorite band. And so, you know, my drumming was not like that at all. Um, it was much more sort of straightforward, but, um, no, I hadn't thought, oh yeah, I want to be like so-and-so or anything. Had you written any songs at this point? No, no. No, I had not. The music that you've made has covered so much, you know, style and volume, like from loud guitar rock to this kind of, you know, Appalachian folk to English folk and all of this. Like, what were you listening to at the time? Well, at the time that I was in my first band, we were listening to what all young punk rockers at that time were listening to. I, I was turned on to Velvet Underground or I was turned on to um, Rank and File or um, the Dead Boys or just, um, just all the great bands of, of that era and just a little bit before that. And then I, at the same time, though, my friend uh, Catherine, uh, who became my partner in Freakwater, um she came her her father was irish and they had a lot of clancy brothers records and she was also a huge dylan fan and uh woody guthrie fan and so we listened to a lot of that but that also just kind of came about through through friendship it wasn't so much just like i want to be in a in a band singing uh songs that are uh, sort of based on mountain music um it was really just friendship i hung out with Catherine, and uh she was already living outside of her parents house and we would uh, put face masks on and listen to music and then i would sing the one song i could sing which was i'm not lisa and uh, uh she loved that and so she said why don't you just try to sing and so we just did and it was just to be together and to have fun and it just sort of slowly everything i think that i've ever done is just been because of wanting to experience that other person and experience the community of it. And it just sort of, and it's through music that I'm able to do that. And it just sort of snowballs into something. Did you see yourself as a singer early on? Oh God, no, no. I, as a matter of fact, I was uh, in high school, I was singing in my bedroom to uh, Fleetwood Mac. And I think my father stuck my, no, my father stuck his head in and said, well, we know there's one thing you will never be. Whoa. It was not easy. Um, so I showed him. Yeah. That and, probably stuck in your head for a while, though. Well, yeah. I just, <laughs> I mean, clearly. <laughs> clearly it stuck in my head. Um, and then, you know, it. I wasn't a singer and it took a long time to to learn how to do it. And, and I and the process of learning how to do it, it was all on records that I've recorded. So I can see the, the evolution of it because I think. Peter Margusak, you know, Chicago writer, um, I think he, uh, he, no, was it him? Somebody said I couldn't sing my way out of a paper bag a long time ago. So it did, it was a process of learning it really, just keeping on doing it and not being daunted and just working at it, you know, I guess. That seems like a, I don't know, coming up through sort of the punk ethos and the DIY years, that seems like a particularly not nice thing to write, but... Well, I think it was written probably by a dude that, um, you know, 
just he was probably fine with punk rock voices of men or something or off keep voices of men, but not so much women. I don't know. Mm. I don't know. Never heard X or something. But. Yeah, exactly. And when you were singing, did you because you're really great at harmonies. Is that something that you sort of figured out that you're good at or is that something you sort of had to learn? Um. I don't even, you know, I don't, I wouldn't say I'm great at harmonies. I'm I'm great at singing along to people, but I don't even, I can be so musically, Catherine and I, and that's where I learned to sing with someone, are both so musically illiterate. You know, we didn't use the name of the chords. We would say um, a whole three, if it was, Cabo was on the third fret and it was an A that had a hole in the middle. We just <laughs> created our own language for that. And, and uh, we, uh, we just really didn't know what the hell we were doing. We were just sort of doing whatever it was that we were able to do. And in our head, we imagined we were like writing George Jones songs or whatever else, but they came out to be something different than that. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of the times when I thought I was singing harmony, I was actually just singing the octave. And so I didn't even know that. That was just the, what I did. I sang the octave on it. And so um, if somebody said, sing of the third or the fifth or whatever, I would be like, you know? So technically, if they said what to do, you wouldn't know. But when right. you just, you and Catherine were singing together, naturally, happened. there's something exactly. about the way your voice is exactly. held that sounded really harmonious, right? Right. right. But, you know, har harmonious and slightly dissonant, you know, in a way that um, some people are, are really drawn to and other people are very much repelled by. <laughs> so it's like, we're both almost like singing the leads of the song in some way, and then they kind of come together. Um, yeah, I, I, I can't explain what it was we did because uh, I don't, it was just a process of creating it on the spot, really. It's the skill of singing with Rick in... 11th Dream Day, is that a different skill set or are you doing the same thing? Kind of the same thing. And, and that's partly uh, limited by what I can do while I'm playing drums at a very uh, uh, um, physical uh, pace. And so <clears throat> some of that is limited to that. Um, how I sing and with that uh, with that band. Um but no, I wouldn't say it, it's kind of the same thing. I'm, I I try to think of parts in a different way, I guess, with Rick, you know, with, with Catherine, it was, we're like the Carter family. We sing the song together, start to finish. It's not really, I just sing Oz here or do those sort of things. And with Dream Day, I, that is something that, um, uh, that I do, you know, I'm, I'm not singing straight along with Rick the whole time. Yeah. I mean, when, so I had a local music column and, from like 90 to 92. So that's when I got to know you guys. And I found all these old clips of me talking to you uh, and, and Rick about, uh, you know, they've been signed to Atlantic and they're working on this album and <laughs> all of this stuff. Um, and I knew of, so I knew of Dream Day first, but when I look back on and then I knew Freakwater afterward. Um, but when you look back on it, really they were coexisting for almost the entire time. Like, you, like, like the first Freakwater album was 80 nine and you know i think you'd release something already with love and dream day by then but did you see like them as just two separate projects that were sort of equally important to you or were they just was one a side project or was you know like how did they coexist in your mind well i you know i had started singing with Catherine prior to 11th dream day um because we were friends in louisville and we'd done open mic nights not under the name Freakwater or anything and we had done open mic nights. And then when I moved to Chicago, 
when I was, I think I just turned 18, um, I moved here uh, because I had met Rick from 11th Dream Day in Louisville, and I followed him here. And uh, Catherine came up to stay and we would, we were singing and I, um, we went back down to my parents' house and recorded, um, on a Fostex machine, uh, in my parents' basement, these, uh, six or seven tunes, all, um, all cover tunes. And it, we, we just were having fun. And, uh, the label that 11th Dream Day was on at the time, which was Amoeba, not related to the fabulous record right. store, just a very small label. Um, he, uh, the gentleman who ran that, uh, said he'd put us out, Freakwater, which we still weren't Freakwater at the time. And uh, so we were sort of, it's, a, it, it's sort of concurrent with each other. You know, we were, we 11 Dream Day had just put out Prairie School Freakout. No, no, no. Our first EP, prior, the, the, uh, the record right before Prairie School. And then... We were Freakwater was making a record, and and we did tour together um, out west, and uh, um, and I think I thought them. I didn't think them as being incompatible. I, there were songs that I wrote and we recorded with Freakwater that ended up on Eleven Dream Day records. Right, that was one of my next questions. Yeah, so um, there's a song called "The Death of Albert C. Sampson," which Eleventh Dream Day did that that was actually recorded with Freakwater first. Um, so they weren't incompatible. They were just sort of different um, avenues for the song uh, that I wrote. You know, one was just much more stripped down and the other was more raucous. <laughs> um, so I guess I saw them as equal parts to a whole. Right. I mean, yeah. Were you kind of on that point at that point, sort of writing on your own and thinking, oh, this is a Freakwater song. This is a 11 Dream Day song. Um. I wasn't writing. Uh, Catherine was writing primarily, I think, at the, for Freakwater. Um, I started writing a lot, I think, after uh, after the first Dream Day EP, because uh, I think I wrote about half of the songs on our first record, or the first full-length record, um, Prairie School Freakout. And then I didn't... Uh, I sort of always deferred to generally Catherine's writing in Freakwater. So I wasn't writing as much for that entity as I was for 11th Dream Day. Um, throughout time, there were certain records that I shared about half of the song, uh, uh, half of the uh, songs on a record, but it was maybe one or two. Uh, and then Catherine, because Catherine is such a brilliant songwriter, it was hard to, <laughs> it was hard to say, I think my song should be on there when hers were just so phenomenal. I wrote for both bands, but primarily I was writing for Love the Dream Day. And what was the collaboration dynamic like in Dream Day? Uh, well, I think probably similar to to most bands, we um, we would write a song on our own and and then bring that song in. And um, sometimes it was more fleshed out than others. And then Doug and uh, at the time Baird uh, and Rick and I would just sort of start playing it and and then we would figure out uh our parts and then that would be the song i mean it wasn't really um at that time i don't think any of us came in and saying i i envision this i envision that it really was just someone brought in a song and we started playing it and sometimes 
if it didn't sound right and the uh, you know the songwriter might be slightly crushed that it's not sounding like they wanted to it sort of may disappear or we it could be just like we kept going and then it became something so i just i think that's fairly normal maybe i don't know i mean was there a sense that you guys were sort of equals as songwriters or was there was there sort of more of a like rick is kind of the the front guy or going to do the most or any of that sort of thing Oh, well, I think we were, we, we weren't always equal in the amount of uh, writing that we did, but there were a lot of times uh, that I was equal in the writing. And I think that we thought of it that way, but he was primarily singing the song. So he was sort of the leader of the band, but um, yeah, I was, I was writing a fair amount, which I think, you know, for that time period, uh, and uh, me being the drummer was not the most um, usual thing, actually, probably for a woman, a woman to be the drummer and then writing half of the songs uh, of, a, of a rock band that was um, sort of a hard driving rock band like that, you know, so. Right. With, all, with the rest of the, you know, the rest of them are guys. <laughs> like, yeah. And singing some of them. And I'm singing some of them. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, like you and. You and Rick at the time, like, what, at what point were you guys together, like as a couple or married or all of that? I don't know. The time um, frame of this. Well, like I said, I followed him up here when I was 18 and um, uh, I, we moved in together not too long after that, a year or so after that. And then we got married in 1988 and uh, we had our son, Matt, in 1991. And then uh, we divorced in 2000, maybe. I'm not sure exactly the year, but um, yeah, that's the trajectory of it. <laughs> right. What's, but in terms of then collaborating with someone who you're going home with, is that more oh, complicated or did that make things easier? No, I mean, maybe for some people, I, I think it is easier for some people. I, you know, I get the sense that George and Ira, uh, Yellow Tango, they go home and it's a real easy collaboration, but it was, we didn't, we didn't, it's not that we didn't collaborate at home. It was just that the the issues of practice would bleed over into, you know, our home life and um, that could create tension or something. Um, it's but, tricky. Yeah, it was tricky. It was tricky. But, you know, somehow we managed it through uh, the birth of our child and through finding out that our child had challenges and then through a divorce and we've still managed to figure it out. So, um, I don't know. And you're still recording yeah, together still recording and together. Everything, yeah. performing together and yeah. everything else. And then I saw something about you were on tour in Italy and very pregnant. Oh. Um, and, uh, you had one show where it didn't really work out so great. Yeah, there was, I, I think at that point I was, um, all of my clothes were too tight because I was, I was maybe like not hugely pregnant, maybe five, four months or five months or something. And uh, um, we were playing a show in Italy and I was exhausted because we were playing every night. And uh, I, we were playing this song. The refrain is about a friend of mine, Melissa Dunn, and, and it's very fast and, and requires a lot of me. And in the middle of the song, I just said, I can't do this anymore. So I just stopped playing and walked off the stage <laughs> and everybody's like, oh, what's going on? And they, Rick comes back and he's like, I, I'm just so tired. I can't, I can't do it. I just physically can't do it. And, and then they convinced me that, you know, we, I could do it. Come back out there. So I was this early or late in the set. Somewhere middle, I think. Okay. I think it's middle set. And uh, um, 
Rick starts to explain why I had left the stage, but he he says that I left the stage because I was sick. <laughs> or something that I wasn't. Yeah, I just wasn't feeling well. I was sick, and and that irritated me. And I and I just said, I'm not sick. I'm fucking pregnant. And, <laughs> and somebody in the audience then yelled, um, "Divorce him and marry me, Jen." <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, that was how it went. And then we played the rest of the show, and it went okay. Was it Rosa Jericho? By Rosa the way? Jericho. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, that would be challenging. And and. You guys were signed to Atlantic like pretty early in the wave of those mm-hmm. like bands signing with major labels because Beat was I think eighty nine. Yeah, I think. Um, so, yeah. And then uh, and then Live to Tell was ninety. Ninety, and then uh, El Mudio was ninety. Uh, Live to Tell was ninety one, and El Mudio was ninety three. Okay, that. I mean, your albums sound like you you know they don't sound like compromised you know rock band trying to please the major label sort of works. I mean, did you feel like you had to sort of do things to sound major label-ish? No, maybe, maybe if I had known what that was, I would have done it for them. (laughs) It just wasn't in my repertoire. You know, we were just a rock band that came from a club and then we're on a major label and it never really occurred to us to, to change anything. And, and I don't know, uh, you know, Rick is a fairly idiosyncratic writer. We're all fairly idiosyncratic. And I don't, I, I, you know, if somebody had said, write, you need to write a hook, you need to write a pop song. We thought that's what we were doing, you know? So, I mean, I, I, I think that uh, we really just thought we were writing songs. Like I, like, you know, in Freakwater, we thought we were writing a George Jones song. I think that's what we're doing. It just comes out to be something else. Right. You know, I didn't, I don't, we did not, I wouldn't say we we didn't compromise ourselves at all because we were just we were really just trying to do what they wanted, but that was the best way. That was the only way we could do it. Yeah, there will be things you'll read about Eleventh Dream Day sort of in retrospect, and like, well, they were ahead of their time, and it was pre grunge, and um, but it's not like you guys sound grunge. It's just that you had a sort of a loud, aggressive, you know, good spiky guitar attack that had sort of drew on punk, but was its own thing. Yeah. But it's not like you would sort of confuse you guys for Nirvana. It's just that Nirvana sort of opened the gates for things to be considered, things that were allowed to be considered more commercial. Right. Right. Now, I never really thought of ourselves as grunge or anything like that. I I remember being at, maybe it was the CME conference um, ages ago when they used to have that. And uh Somebody mentioned something about me being the godmother of grunge, and I thought it was the funniest thing because it was just that was just so alien to me. Um, I, I, we we weren't thinking of anything, or we did not feel a part of some sort of musical wave, except for you know uh, the small community that we had here in Chicago of folks that we played shows with. You know, we felt part of that community, but not like a like a, I don't know, a genre or something, or, nor did Freakwater, even though, you know, we, they were trying to put us into this thing. We really just didn't, we, we didn't feel like we were trying to create a, a movement or, or anything like right. that. Right. Well, what was the relationship with Atlantic like? Well, early on, it was pretty fun. Bettina Richards, who now uh, and for many decades uh, has been the uh, uh, label thrill jockey, um, she was the A&R person that signed us. And so 
it was a lot of really great people in the um, in their department that was uh, tasked with signing some you know new young bands and and it was the Lemonheads and us and um, I, I think that that department department was maybe uh, not as attached to the larger machine as they should have been and so there there were restrictions that made that department it made it very challenging for us like for example when we had our when a record came out, you know, we'd always been used to selling records at the shows and stuff like that. And um, we weren't allowed to do that anymore. So you weren't only could go through the stores and the distributors. So we were coming to these shows that everybody was used to buying records at the shows. And we weren't we had to tell them we had nothing. And that's all that anybody does now. So it yeah. means like there was a sort of weird window where they put this control on you yeah. and not be able to do something that's exactly. totally natural. And on top of that, not it was really hard for people to find the record at the stores. So we had all these people come to the shows that wanted to buy the record. And we sent it, you know, you got to go to the record store. And then they're like, why would you want to go to the record store? And there's like no Amazon at this point. Or... No Amazon. And so that was really challenging. Like some things didn't make any sense for for um uh, the scene that we were a part of, like the traveling independent, uh, low budget rock scene that we were a part of. So that was a challenge, but you know, I, I don't have any regrets or any of it. It was super fun to be, um, you know, have, have these, uh, photo shoots, these fancy photo shoots and to be driven around in a limo occasionally and stay at a fancy hotel. That was all kind of fun. It was, um, uh, and it didn't really, our trajectory through that out, like coming into it and through it and out of it, it didn't really change us musically or anything. Yeah, know? that's what I was wondering if they if they gave you any directives. Because again, it's not like there was a point where all of a sudden your drum sounded like this cannon's going off or something like that. Or, you know, like, I'm, I'm just wondering if there was interference in the music making. No, our first record with them, they let us pretty much do everything. And we totally confused the art department because Catherine and Freakwater made a painting for uh, the first uh, record, which is called Beat, uh, uh, B-E-E-T. And it was named as such because we were all living together, Catherine and Rick and I, and we had little gardens out uh, in the backyard. And um, I think I was growing beets and Catherine was growing something else. I can't remember exactly. And so... We just we just liked the beats, so we called it beat. We thought that was funny, and then so Catherine made this painting of a beat on the right. on the cover, and she hand did like all the spine artwork. Everything was hand done, and we turned it in the art department, and they were completely flummoxed. They're like, "This like this is it. This is like a this is like a real painting here with writing on it." You know, they were. I don't think they were really used to dealing with something that was um, uh, so. But they were still so flexible rough. enough to let the let artist provide art. I mean, like now I can't imagine a record company saying, oh, yeah, you guys can do your own art. They'd probably have this huge marketing. They probably have like 20 marketing meetings to come exactly. up with. The cover. They let us they let us record um, with. Uh, uh, um, they they let us bring in who we wanted to record us. It was it was all very low budget uh, and um, it was pretty much the way we wanted to do it. Yeah. And, and kind of remarkable in a way. So I, uh, and then even with the second record with um, Live to Tell, it was another painting of Catherine's. And then uh, I thought, let's go record in a barn. That'll be fun. And, and they let us do that. And we went down to um, 
Cub Run, Kentucky, and I went down first and uh, uh, added a second floor to a barn so we could uh, play on the second floor. And um, they came down and we had uh, um, we had remote a unit come down and uh, record everything, and it was it was great. It was it was crickets in the background. So, um, and then the third record we got to do in in New York and Manhattan, and that was really fun. So they didn't they didn't curtail us in any way like that, honestly. You said so casually. I added a second floor to a barn. How does <laughs> how does one just like add a second floor to a barn to record? Floor up there, and then I just took I, there was large stacks of um, two by fours that I cut and then hammered the floor. <laughs> like there was there was not a floor there, and you put a floor in just so you guys could record up there. Yeah, I mean there was partial floor, and I okay. finished it out. All right, yeah. that's still though you know beyond what band members usually do adding floors to barns fun though it was sort of like a romantic thing in my head i just i listened to music and hammered away in the barn and yeah yeah so all right so so i found some of my old clips from so here's one from november 22nd 1991 because this column that i did was like it was sort of like meant to be like the local music bulletin board basically um 11th Dream Day has been back in the studio recording demos for Atlantic Records. Quote, we just want to get some stuff on tape and let them give us feedback, says singer-guitarist Rick Rizzo. We want to make a bigger splash with the next record because I don't think Live to Tell did as well as it could have. We want to make sure we're on the same page, so to speak. The band, whose two previous Atlantic Records albums fared better critically than commercially, recorded four songs in two days at Idful Music with Brad Wood producing. Uh, Tara from the band Antietam played on one song. These recordings were the band's first with the guitarist Winko Bannon, who replaced Baird Fiji earlier in the year. And then um, I also mentioned... Uh, then it says, in the meantime, 11th Dream Day drummer Janet Bean, who is also Rizzo's wife, has been at Idful with Green frontman Jeff Lesher recording Bram Parsons' Emily Lou Harris out songs for an album for Europe's Megadisc label. Uh, Bean and Rizzo are expecting a baby next month. And then I think the thing about Diane Christensen was after that. That uh, that Those sessions with Jeff, uh, uh, they were so painful because I was like nine months pregnant and my lungs were like the size of a pea. And I... Trying to sing, you know, to do any justice to those Emmy Lou uh, tracks, and uh, it was so hard. I saw you guys do shows together. I saw you and Jeff. You did a, like, I don't know how many you actually did. I don't know. I don't remember if it was like an Avalon or somewhere. But I remember you and Jeff specifically doing sort of a, you know, Graham and Emmy Lou show. Yeah, yeah, we might have done that. I don't remember. That's, that's a very blurry period. <laughs> I mean, considering I was very pregnant and uh, making the record, it was, I think my head was in a different place, but I I, I believe that I did that. <laughs> well, and to, you when you say that. And then to go back to, so so this is in the lead up to El Mudio, and you're recording stuff with Brad Wood and said you'd done four songs. Mm -hmm. Like later you put out New Mudio, which was, was that those recordings plus other ones yeah because we had been dropped from atlantic between live to tell and um uh El we had been dropped our contract had lapsed we didn't you know they didn't say anything we didn't say anything we're like hey we're free we can do what we want and so we went in to record those tracks 
And then Danny Goldberg came into uh, the position of head of the department that we were at Atlantic, and he came here and uh, took us to brunch at the Four Seasons and uh, convinced us that um, he really wanted us. He wanted us back, and he was going to forgive any debt that we have, which was a big deal, and um, give us the support and everything that we needed. Um, and... Uh, he did forgive the debt, but everything else did not really transpire. <laughs> he promised us it would. Um, and so we had those original tracks that we then went and record, recorded them in New York when we were doing the record for Atlantic. But we'd gone back to listen to them. I think maybe um, Brad found them or something and, and uh, said, these are really pretty good. And we listened to him and was like, yeah, those are really good. And, and um, uh, John Solomon uh, he uh, said he'd put them out. And so that's why he put out New Moodio. Right. Yeah. So when you were recording this stuff with Brad, was it considered, were you looking at it as demos or were you looking at it as maybe this is our next record? I don't remember. I, uh, it could have probably been either, uh, really. I mean, it, it could have been something that we'd made that we might shop around to other labels as possibly putting out. Or if they said, yeah, that sounds good, go in and do it again. Maybe we would have done that, I, you know. I, I don't think we, I don't recall it having like a specific agenda. We were just, these are our new songs. We're going to record these new songs. Right. Well, I thought it was interesting that Rick was saying that, you know, we wanted to sort of record these to make sure we're on the same page with Atlantic and see what they think. And Well, that was, those demos didn't have anything. I don't recall those demos being recorded for anything for Atlantic. I thought, I really do think that fell in between this time period where we thought we were off of Atlantic. And then we went in to maybe they listened to those songs and then decided they wanted us back. I can't remember. Rick is the better historian than I am. Right. Uh, so, yeah. So that story was from, again, November 22nd, 91. Mm -hmm. And then I found a note from, February 14th, 92, uh, which says Google's an amazing thing. That's the stuff is still there. That was a long time ago. I was doing this job and you were doing that yes. job. Uh, after recording a couple of lauded but moderate selling albums for Atlantic Records, 11th Dream Day has asked to leave the label. Quote, a lot of the people we had worked with were no longer there, says drummer Janet Bean. We just didn't have a lot in, of connection with the label anymore. It just didn't seem to be going in the direction we wanted to go. Um, Atlantic recently eliminated its alternative music division and the two talent scouts responsible for signing the band, Peter Kepke and Bettina Richards, left the label for PLG's London label. Um, yeah, there's a nice quote from the band has more integrity, talent and potential than most bands out there. And they're going to do great, says Regina Josco, the band's former publicist at Atlantic, who also has moved to PLG. I know there's a great deal of interest in the band from a number of labels. Yeah, so, I guess so. And then Danny yeah. Goldberg ended up bringing you back after yeah, all that. He, he uh, lured us back in. Uh, and I don't think we, um, I don't know if it was the right move for us to have gone back uh, because it really, it it didn't work out. And, and I remember very distinctly uh, the first single off of that record was, um, uh, Making Like a Rug, which I had written. Uh, Kick, lead song on that album, you sing it. 
Yeah, I do sing it. And I remember being called in. The band was in New York to do something and we were there. And, and this is in my mind how I remember it. It might have been less dramatic, but, you know, one of those very long conference tables and a bunch of men sitting around it. And some of the young guys were talking about how they'd flown their helicopters in from wherever their house was to get to the office and stuff. And they uh, proceeded to tell me that um, uh, women singers weren't very big right now. And so that's why my single wasn't doing, that single from that record wasn't doing very well because women just weren't very popular. No, women. And, uh, and I didn't even know how to process that really. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I wish I had had uh, the awareness that I do now and, and responded in the correct way, which would have been just probably taken by the neck but um yeah that was that was their reasoning was that why it wasn't doing well is because i was i was a woman <laughs> they didn't have that problem when they decided to release that as a single though well after they the didn't single, notice maybe that you were a woman when they chose it as a single yeah they chose it as a single and then they decided that the reason it wasn't working was because of this as if somehow that was going to be less painful than just saying it's really not resonating with people or it's not you know they don't like the song or whatever or we just don't know how to market it or anything like that they, they choose they chose to say women aren't very popular right that's nice <laughs> yeah frank had a plan it was his master plan he found francis that you gotta stand by your Pop is supported by Revolution Brewing, Illinois' largest independent brewery. Maybe you're observing dry January. Maybe you're hitting your limit. Or maybe you're a hop fan looking for some morning or midday refreshment. Either way, you're in luck because Revolution has created an excellent non-alcoholic beer alternative. Super Zero is a sparkling hop water that delivers the citrusy hop flavor you'd expect from the makers of the best-selling anti-hero IPA. It's available in six packs at stores and on revbrew.com. When you look at sort of the, the arc of, you know, 11th Dream Day's career and all these albums and you have your three albums for Atlantic and others you've done since, because you guys have been pretty consistent in recording. Are, do you see it as like peaks and valleys or do you like, are there sort of favorite albums of yours and ones you're like, ah, I, don't, I would never want to listen to that one again. Or is it more just like, yeah, this is, we just kept doing what we were doing and you know, the way it was distributed changed, but what we were doing did not. The more distant I am from the material having created it, the different, you know, there's a, I interpret it a little bit differently and I'm far more forgiving about things anyway uh, now. So the arc of it, definitely there's an arc. And I, and it, I think of it a lot of, I think of this as a, a lot, like the longevity of it. And it's sort of just like this living diary sort of, because we've always, I've always written from a very personal place. And so it's like this, this, living musical diary of my life since I was like 18 years old. And, uh, uh, that's, a, it's a pretty overwhelming thing sometimes when I think about it and listen back and, um, and remember the, whatever sort of shit I was going through that I was channeling into the music. And, um, 
it's yeah it is uh, there are periods of time and i one of my favorite records is um um ursa major which is not on uh any we that was the only album we put out on that record that was the first one after the atlantic records yeah yeah i'm i'm really fond of that record um and i i think i think the same for rick and then there were records that i less fond of i think zeros and ones but then i went back and listened to that not that long ago and i'm like now there's some really great songs on there so it's just um i think sometimes you're too close and then the further away you are from it um the less you have that sort of i don't know um you you can just view it in, in a more um objective way i suppose and so you know i like all of them honestly i do it's i i it's it's probably embarrassing to say that I like all of them. I like, I think all of, you know, the, the ones that are sort of, uh, maybe, cause it really is just like looking back at my life. And so I, I don't, you know, I don't, I, I like, I like the trajectory of it. And I, and I like the, the, sometimes the, the places where things went and how they were following things. You know, I think like on Ursa Major, we were starting to get into the uh, things that um, were opening it up musically a little bit, you know, that Doug was starting to um, create tortoise. And so some of those elements were coming in and just learning new things and, um, uh, and becoming better at what you do. I'm, I'm much more generous about the uh, inadequacy of my playing as an early, uh, you know, in the early years and seeing how that was, you know, it was, uh, I don't know. There was there was a, a a magical charm to it or something, you know. So I don't. Well, it worked with your band. I mean. Yeah, I yeah. I mean, maybe they would have been. Maybe the band would have been more famous had they had a a, a more uh, accomplished drummer. I don't know, but um, I, they probably wouldn't have been around for as long. I think so. Yeah, a, a Facebook friend, probably a mutual Facebook friend, just posted something just the other day about how much he enjoys the album Eighth. Yeah. And how it was like, you know, this was like after all the pressure was off and you guys could just be you or something like yeah. that. Yeah, I think we've approached things like that. We've done things all different ways. Our last record, Since Grazed, we did during COVID. So none of us were in the studio at the same time. And uh, we'd never recorded a record like that. And and I I very much I'm very proud of that record. And, um, yeah, we've done things we've done things in this like super intense let's record 17 songs in one night kind of thing and and uh to to how we recorded since grazed and throughout it you know i think obviously the the dynamics of the relationship that uh the challenges of the relationship between rick and i uh influence sometimes things that were going on in the studio but we always managed to make something work out of that and when you play live together like what's the feeling now is it does it feel like it used to feel years ago is there a sense of you know oh it's you know gratitude that like wow we still can do this or do you feel different as a player or similar it's there's immense gratitude it's very exciting i feel very very lucky um and um you know, I, uh, 
I think, you know, when Jim Elkington joined the band, I think it really did bring a new energy to us. And um, we we got better uh, at a very late stage in our career. So that was very exciting. Uh, and I, you know, I love playing those songs. There have been periods of time. Um, well, sometimes, you know, I, I think I'm a fairly uh, reluctant, like, musician as a career you know i'm just like oh my god it's so uh, it's i don't want to do that i don't want to be traveling around in a like like i'm in the carnival <laughs> like shows i don't want to do that or or um just uh taking a show accepting a show and then uh hoping that you i'd be hit by a bus before it came because the anxiety of that next show it's <laughs> so overwhelming that's bad <laughs> yeah it's bad um uh that doesn't happen so much anymore. You know, now it's really just such, there's the whole, there's so much love and uh, I, I think just pure joy uh, uh, that happens on the stage. So yeah, it's, it's changed, but it's just, it's really, uh, there's no, we're not, we're not doing it to sell a ton of records or to, um, get the next placement on some sort of show. We really are honestly doing it because we just love that experience of doing it on the stage playing together. And then you've had freak water going on all this time as well. Yeah. And, and the freak cons. Yeah. Well, the freak cons, that's true. Freak water, me cons mashup. Um, yeah, but I think, you know, the freak water might be done touring because during COVID that was the first time since I was like 16, 17 years old, that I didn't have a show that was in the future. Like, uh, and that was funny to think about. Like there was always, always a show in the future, but then there was no show in the future. And we canceled, Freakwater canceled a tour right at the start of the COVID because of that. And, and then there was a sense of uh, relief. It was, it was a really a sense of relief. And I think, Catherine came to a place where she realized how uh, how much anxiety it was, anxiety-inducing it was for her to perform. And so she said, I just don't think I can, I can't tour, I can't do that anymore. And and I and it made total sense to me. Um, so I don't know if we'll ever play some shows again, maybe. Uh, or an album again? I hope so. I hope so. It, but she wasn't opposed to that. Um, Last one was Shahrazad, two thousand sixteen. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of that record. Yeah, that sort of went uh, was on Bloodshot, and then Bloodshot sort of imploded, and um, so it's just sort of sitting there. But we toured a lot on that record. We hadn't toured that much on a record in a long time, and so we had really done a slew of shows, um, and. Uh, I think we were pretty worn out after the end of them. And um, maybe if we do do something, it would not be with a band again. It would be something very intimate with just the two of us or maybe Anna playing fiddle, Dave. Yeah. And then your your Freakons stuff, is, has that been more recent? Like, what's the last Freakons show? So, was it? Like after after COVID, yeah, yeah, like yeah, it was after COVID because the record came out after COVID. Yeah. Well, we had we had recorded a bunch of stuff and it just sat there for a really long time, uh, and uh, 
finally, we asked um, John Shepsky at uh, Fluff and Gravy if he would put it out, and he was um, crazy enough to agree, and then we made the record. And then we just, I don't know, we did it, and I think it was the idea of getting us all together. We're all over the country, and uh, doing a show uh, was challenging. And so we had the experience of doing it, and it was a whole lot of fun. And uh, um, But I don't know if we'll do that again or not. I don't know. Um, yeah, I've got my band with Sally, that uh, Moxie Tongue. I don't know if you're familiar with Moxie Tongue. I was going to, one of the things I was going to do is run down, okay, how many other <laughs> bands there are. So, okay. And, and I was also going to ask you when you got to meet, when you met Sally, because I feel like the two of you are sort of peas in a pod in a way, Sally Tunes. Yeah. So, um, well, with Sally, the first time that I was in her presence was, I believe we were playing a show. 11th Dream Day was opening for the Mekons, and I think that was in Kansas City. Um, and uh, we got to sound check, and they were sound checking. And I looked in through the door of the venue, and she was on the stage looking just incredible and singing. Um, uh, she might have been singing a Grand Parsons song or something. And uh, just, I was sort of in awe. And then through the course of the night, they proceeded just to just be so wild and drinking so much vodka in the dressing room that we didn't, we were afraid to go in there. And so <laughs> I was just like, I don't know about those Mekons. <laughs> They're very friendly. And, and so I didn't really know her very well at all. And then we went on tour together, Freakwater and Sally. Um, I don't remember what record that was. Maybe uh springtime maybe uh we toured together and then we became friends and um and very very close friends and so um yeah that was the first time i met her but it's been let's see at least 20 24 five years now I think, yeah springtime was 98 so yeah. um yeah and it's and it's and at some point you realized you were musically you know, compatible as well, which makes total sense when you hear both. Yeah, of you. Well, not just musically compatible, but sort of uh, our, um, I don't know, just as friends, just as right. girlfriends, just very compatible as girlfriends. Yeah. So, yeah, no, my, my assumption was that you guys were friends and then it was just like, oh, we could also do some stuff on stage together. I mean, I've seen you get up at Mekon shows and just play with them and like various combinations of things. So, yeah, yeah. But we weren't when we became friends. It wasn't at all with the idea that we would play together right. or anything like that. We were just we were just good girlfriends, and and um, we didn't. I would sing with her sometimes if she had to do something solo, and um, uh, so I'd do that. But then we put together a band in oh I don't know what that year that would have been twenty fifteen or something called Moxie Tongue, and that was our first sort of actual collaboration. And then you had the horses ha with Jim Elkington. I had the horses ha with Jim Elkington. Couple that albums with before that, right? Um, kind of your British folk thing. Yeah, well, Jim and I just sort of wanted to get together and sing some cover songs with the idea of just sort of having fun and maybe playing, I don't know, the pot bellies or something. It's an open mic thing. You just play some cover songs and and. Uh, 
it just sort of morphed into this thing where we were writing and and then Fred Longer home uh, started playing cello with us and then it sort of just built out from there and um uh that was a really beautiful project we got to make some uh play with some I got to play with some beautiful players and uh um and we made a couple records and uh that was that was really awesome the song willing hands is really pretty oh thanks like, yeah he well jim is an extraordinary songwriter uh and such a mind-blowingly gifted lyricist really really good really good um and so was that the connection that got him into 11th dream day then yeah yeah you know i was playing with him and we needed i had what had happened is I broke my ankle one of the multiple times I broke my ankles um, right before a show we were supposed to do at the Pritzker Pavilion downtown playing with um, uh, Bonnie Prince Billy, I think. And I couldn't play the drums and it was like two days later or something. And uh, we asked if Jim would learn the drum parts. And so he played drums at that show and that was for zeros and ones and uh and he played drums and then i don't know how it morphed into him playing guitar but it, but it did yeah nice and then uh and then you also had a your album dragging wonder lake mm-hmm. uh with the, the concertina wire yeah right yeah that was what 2003 2003 thank you for your accuracy because i <laughs> It's just off the top of my head. I just know this encyclopedically. I don't have it right in front of me on a printout or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that I, Catherine had made a solo record and I was sort of trying to work my through, way through a really tumultuous time of my life, uh, relationship wise. I already, Rick and I were apart and um, I uh, thought, Bettina said, why don't you make a record? This would be good for you to make a record. And so I said, okay, I'll try to do that. And um I wrote the record and um got to record it again with with Jim Baker, James Baker, you know, the piano player, incredible player, uh Fred Lomberg Holm and John uh Spiegel who was also in uh Freakwater played on it and um yeah, it was an interesting process. So that sort of, that record is sort of like an in my mind is a is an opera. It's so it has a, a each song is placed on the record at the point that I wrote it. And that basically plays out a trajectory of a story for me. So it was sort of like this concept record. (laughs) So like in your daily life now, do you have time where you're playing, whether it's guitar or practicing drums or whatever, and then do you have time where you're trying to write songs or do songs kind of just come to you? And like, and then if so, are you thinking about like, oh, this is for, you know, playing with Sally, or this is maybe an 11th Dream Day song for the future, or this is for my next solo project, whatever that is? Um, well, I'm terrible about keeping up a practice. I'm really terrible about it. I, I, um, I do a lot of creative things, uh, and I start them. This is a terrible, a, a, a terrible part of me. <laughs> And I have, I, I pick things up pretty easily and I do something and then I'm like, oh, oh I'm on to the next thing. You know, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> don't relate to that at all. And so, you know, I've got a, an, a loom sitting in the corner, you know, or I have a dark room sitting in that corner and all these things that I just, I was obsessed about and did some work that people said, oh, you've got a little promise. And then I'm like, oh, and I don't know if it's because 
I'm afraid of the hard work that it might take to actually really be good at something, or if I get bored quickly, I'm not sure yet exactly what it is. Maybe by the time I'm 90, I'll figure that out because at 60, I, I'm almost 60 and I still haven't figured it out. But um, I don't, I'm not good about the practice. There are periods of time where I have sat down with that, with the guitar every day. I'll say, all right, every morning I'm going to sit down and just play the guitar and Every time that I make that effort, I have a batch of stuff that comes out from it. But then there are long periods of time when I do not pick up the guitar at all. Um, and then I had this accident playing football with my son last February, and I broke my finger. And um, uh, I wasn't... I. I wasn't able to play the guitar really a long, long time. I couldn't bend my uh, my index finger properly enough to form a chord, and so that's just been getting better now. Um, and then, but I, what I did do recently was um, I I thought of all the women singers in um, Chicago that are, there's so many great ones here, and and how. I've had relationships with them, but primarily at the venue level. Like we don't hang out and do stuff. We see each other at various shows or stuff, and, and that's about it. And so I thought, well, maybe because I was really missing singing with women. And uh, so I called a bunch up and I said, let's just come to my house and uh, bring some songbooks and make some food and we'll just have a singing party. And so um, we've done that several times now and uh it's like a monthly thing and we get together wow. and and just sing songs and i told mark greenberg about it who runs the loft for wilco and he said oh you gotta come in and record something so we did go in and record a couple of things that sound pretty awesome but the purpose of it isn't really to make a record to play a show to do anything like that it was really just camaraderie just getting being able to hang around some really awesome women and eat some really great food that we all make and sing songs whether it just be you know uh the boxer or fairport convention song or just some old traditional song or john cale song or anything it's just whatever we want to bring and try to sing it as a eight or nine piece <laughs> female singing so, group all right so who are the other uh singers in here uh well at least Bergman and she uh she has uh, big Sadie is the band that she's in and um she and her husband run um Judson and Moore the distillery okay she's a great singer Leah Shields um and uh she's with the girls of the Golden West and uh obviously is a great cook because she started Lula's decades ago and her singing partner Mary D Reynolds um, Janine O'Toole, who sings with all kinds of people here in the city, really wonderful woman. Sally, um, Nora O'Connor. Right. Nora. Nora's great. Uh, she's, she's just like the aces in the hole. She can just, you know, she is a true musical talent, you know, I mean, uh, S Sally and I, you know, we're just, we're just sort of both like, this is what we do. And, and I, I, I'm fairly inflexible. I'll try to do what you ask me to, but probably it's going to bounce back to what it is that I do. But Nora, that's why she can actually go out and sing with touring bands and stuff. Cause she's so good. Um, and myself and then, um, yeah, that's, that's the group and pretty much. Yeah. Sounds like an awesome project. I, yeah. I, I assume Mark wanting to record it is with some eye of getting it out into the world at some point. 
just he just we should we should do it and we did a norma tenega song i don't know if you're familiar with her but uh we did uh, no we did this song called stranger and it's super dreamy and it's it turned out really beautifully and then we did um uh lay my love the um uh eno song oh yeah yeah we did that, um, and we're still working on that a little bit. But really, it's just, it's, I want to invite other women. Sometimes someone just couldn't make it that day, but it really is just about coming and singing songs and um, having fun. Are you spending a lot of time on the arrangements, or is it just everyone kind no. of finding a part as you sing it? We sing it about 10 times, and we get closer and closer, and then we're like, okay, what's the next song? And then we just move on to the next one. Yeah. That sounds great. We're sort of recording it along the way and taking photos of it, um, but... Uh, it really was for me. I just I, I miss singing with women, and um, I I I like to eat, and and I know a lot of good friends friends that can cook and sing, and so it just sort of made perfect sense to get together and do that. Tell me more about that Black Cat Dark Horse album. Um, are you familiar with the band The Nightingales, uh, punk rock band from? Uh, Birmingham in England uh, that uh, were first the prefects. They toured the Clash and Leon. Yeah, I was gonna say there there was a while ago that they were long. I mean, yeah. they've been around for a very long, long time. And the uh, the main man in that band is uh, Robert Lloyd, and he's uh, a, an incredible character, great uh, front person, and a great lyricist. Uh, and he was a fan of Freakwater. And he came, he showed up at the door of a BBC recording studio where Frequenter was doing an interview. And we walked outside and he said, I'm a big fan. I'm in this band. And I had no idea who the band was, but he said, let's go have a pint. And we went with him to the bar and had a pint. And he was, uh, we all had a good laugh. He was really a lot of fun. Then he would proceed to send us records. And if we would go to, um, go to Europe and play, uh, he would go to the shows and, I swear, he does not, he says he doesn't remember this, but that's because he probably had too many pints. But after every show, he would come back and he would say, man, that Catherine is amazing. She's so amazing. What's it like playing with someone so amazing? And it was always so funny to me. And at first it was just like, man, you don't tell me that. I just got on stage. <laughs> and, and I said, yeah, that's pretty great. It's pretty awesome. It's pretty great. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, she's amazing. And um and it was just sort of funny. And, and uh, then out of the blue, I got a text and it said, hi, this is Robert Lloyd. I'm wondering if you'd be interested in making a record with me. And I wrote him back and I said, I think you mean the other one. You mean Catherine, not me. And he said, no, no, I mean you. And uh, so that was before COVID. And we were working on it. Uh, thinking of songs that we were going to do, like covers and stuff. And I was sending him um, outrageous songs like, you know, Meat uh, uh, Loaf's Dashboard Lights or whatever, or some Led Zeppelin song. Well, let's try to do a weird duet with this. And he was just, I've never heard a Led Zeppelin song in my life. I was like, how can that be? And, I, and so he's like, I don't know anything about this Meat Loaf. I don't know. No, no, no. And then Did you guys do Paradise by the Dashboard Light? We did not. No, he, he ixnayed that. Yeah, which I still think it's a good idea. Um, you just wanted to come in with stop right Yeah, of course, of course. Um, but then we got this group of songs together and COVID hit and so we didn't do anything. And um, and then 
time came. He said, let's just do this. And we went and recorded. It was a really amazing super group of people. It was Mark Bedford from Madness and um, Pete Birchmore, who plays the Membranes, and um, Venezuela, not Venezuelan, a Valencian drummer, Pablo Rota. And we made the record in Valencia. Uh, John Henderson, uh, his label, Tiny Global Productions, put the record out. We had a really great time making the record. And it was, he wanted to sing a song of mine and a freak water song. And he wanted me to sing a so some songs of his. And then we did some, uh, we did a Dion song and we did um, some old songs that didn't make it onto some of his records. And uh, we just had a really great time and the band clicked and, and um, the record is a lot of fun. Sort of like, uh, for lack of something better, it's like Lee and Nancy, although those are those are best. So, I mean, so I don't, I, I, I hate to give it that kind of accolade, like Lee and Nancy, Lee Hales with Nancy. Yeah, yeah. But it's sort of like that sort of duet thing. It has right. a 60s vibe to it. And um, so we made that record and uh, we went over, I went over and played a show uh, uh, with Lindsay Moore, uh, Morrison, who was in the uh, go-betweens. She drummed on it when we played a show in um, London. And that was, that was a really great experience. Um, and then we got to make a, super fancy video uh this gentleman that um uh you know he's won baftas and stuff and he liked it and uh well Stuart lee turned him on i don't know if you know the comedian Stuart lee he's sort of like a beloved um english comedian quite funny and he loved it he was good friends with uh, he made a documentary on robert lloyd called king rocker which is also great um and uh we made a video uh full on with um uh yeah, I, oh, actually a real video with, with makeup people and everything. It was very exciting and fun. And um, we got to use clips from the Ed Sullivan show, which was kind of bizarre because those things cost tons of money, but I, somehow we got to use this for like nothing. And so it's us playing, the video is us playing on the Ed Sullivan show. So it's uh, Ed Sullivan audience. It's Ed Sullivan introduces us uh -huh. and then we play the song. <laughs> so it's pretty fun. Um, so that was the last big project that I did. And that was... Um, that was a whole lot of fun. And I am, you know, what I would really like to do is just do different things like that with people. Like with Michael Zarang, uh, we play uh, together with a couple other drummers in this uh, group that's just based on um, a light fixture that Michael Zarang obtained from the Velvet Lounge. And we turn and he turned it into a percussion instrument. And we all play these versions of this bell, uh, this light fixture that have been turned into bells. Yeah. And we play this kind of um, uh, trancy kind of long pieces, you know, and uh, I just love the different doing those different things. So uh, anybody that wants to ask me to do some oddball thing, I'm just always all in. So, so really it's a call, call for more collaborations and more bands. Yeah. Cause you're not in enough bands. Like, you're you're going to move ahead of John Langford in the <laughs> I'm in the most bands, you know? Yeah. But I don't, these are just like the small projects, you know, John just plays every day of the year. John actually wrote a song for the um, black cat, dark horse for us too, which oh. is a really beautiful song called uh, tears like stars on that record. Nice. So are you going to do another one of those as well? I don't know. I don't know. You know, um, 
if it was easy, yeah, sure. If someone wants to bring me back to Spain, I mean, that was part of the condition. I said, I'll make a record with you, but um, it has to be in the winter in a warm place. Nice. So that's why we got to go to Spain to do it. Cool. Yeah. So is there a next time that you expect to be on stage? I, I don't think I have anything scheduled. Um, I would really like, you know, it'd be fun to bring over the, the, uh, record that I made with Robert Lloyd, um, just, uh, the last record I put out, uh, black cat, dark horse, that would be fun to bring over to the States, but we don't have any, um, solid plans to do that. Uh, I think I was talking to Rick. I had this idea that I wanted dream day just to, for everybody to pick like two or three of their favorite like favorite songs and we would just do a whole show of the band's favorite cover songs um and then uh and then uh, i think for some of us that actually have a lot of uh, other things that they do they're like that's a lot of work I can't work to right. songs for one show so we may just have another show and you know i thought we played the 40th anniversary of the band at the metro here uh last april and i, I I sort of got the sense that this could be the last show. Rick had said we will we can do shows, but they have to be something pretty special to do it. I'm just you know I'm not going to just play a show because uh, we haven't played a show. Has, if someone asks us to do something that sounds really fantastic or something, um, and then so we played that show. But then right after that, we got asked to play the Square Roots Festival right. in town, and so we did that. And so I was like, oh, that's funny. We're playing more now than ever. <laughs> so um, we I. Uh, so on the suggestion of the show where everyone does covers, I said, well, what if we just play a Lemon Dream Day show? And they said, well, we're into that. So we might do that um, in uh, late spring, early summer at the hideout. So. Oh, nice. Well, thank you so much. This has been really great. Uh, it's been it's been fun. And, and it's funny. It was funny to go back to these clips and like, like, yeah, I was talking to you like 32 years ago about stuff like there's there you quoted. So there's evidence. Yeah. But um, yeah, because I've like seen and heard you like over the years and you've done so much cool stuff. So I thought, oh, no, I got to gotta have you on so so thank so thank you thank you, thank you so much that's all for episode 116 of carol pop thanks so much to janet beverage bean for guiding us through her work from 11th dream day Freakwater, and beyond for more about 11th dream day go to 11thdreamday.com and yes the number is spelled out Freakwater has an official facebook page and there's a fan site freakwater.net Neither group has any shows or projects scheduled, but I remember digging into their back catalogs in the meantime. And you can order last year's Lloyd Bean album, Black Cat Dark Horse, from lloydbean.bandcamp.com. Keep an eye and ear out for the next appearances of Moxie Tongue, The Freakons, and whatever else Beverage Bean does. Kiropop is produced by Chris Swake, for whom every day is a dream day. We encourage you to support Carol Pop so we can keep this podcast free and sustainable. Get whatever you'd like on carolpop.com. We appreciate you all. I'm Mark Carroll. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter, X, and Instagram at Carol Popcast. And you can follow me as well at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Please share this episode, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks. Thanks.